Exodus chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. first thing the Lord says completely put away every other God in your lives there's no co-regency with God of any God goddesses or deities there's no sharing of his rulership in our lives with anything or anyone. There's no competition. It's the first thing he says to the people. Who does he say this to? The children of Abraham. Egypt, as we know, had many, many gods, goddesses. Man, by nature, is said, has been said as a religious creature. By nature, we look to follow something or someone. And the human soul is in the midst of two powers, ultimately, that seek ownership of the soul. It's that important. God seeks to save the soul, give new life to every human being to give fulfillment and satisfaction life and liberty and real love everlasting inheritance a return to the creator the rightful owner by a volitional act of surrender on our part because the Lord invites us come all you who are thirsty come will give you drink the other power that seeks ownership is Satan the adversary the accuser the devil and he seeks to deceive and capture and destroy every human soul from one end of the earth to the other he seeks souls to destroy by deception. The first thing God says to his people, as well as to anyone that should come to God outside of the Jewish race, as the gospel has gone forth, even from the Old Testament through the teaching of the holiness of God and the separation from the world. And so the commandment here, even though it's directed first or primarily to the Jews, the descendants of Abraham the Jew, is applicable to everyone. First thing God says is, 
I am the one who rescued you. I revealed myself to you. I've spoken to you and told you come out from your old ways, your old loyalties and allegiances. To who? The false gods. To the devils. Impersonation. Imposter impersonations of the real God. This has very profound implications in our lives. At the base level, we can look at it in the life of one who, such as my grandfather, came from the Hindu religion. He had many, many gods and so-called deities and characters in that religion that he was brought up to show loyalty to. Different forms of the unknown reality or the ultimate reality. Man by nature is a religious creature. And the devil capitalizes on that by deception. That the real God, the living God, comes very forthrightly, lovingly, always bringing with him life, light, and love. Because that's the nature. In him was life. In him was light. God is love, the scriptures say. A person who comes from another religion, such as my grandfather did, had an encounter with Jesus Christ. As I recall, being engaged in some combat training in Israel before the independence of India, accompanied by, as I recall, the deputy governor of one of the territories in the south in India. And there he had an encounter with the Lord he came back home and he made the announcement to his mother that he is now a Christian. And he was immediately warned and rejected, scorned by his mother with whom, as the firstborn, the elder in the family after his dad had died, with some ten brothers and sisters. He was the one who would carry on that legacy of his father and be a father figure to the family. Everything was lost. He found himself the object of scorn and hate all of a sudden from being such a respected person in the family because he chose to follow 
one God, the real God, Jesus Christ. And when he chose to follow Jesus Christ, he knew he couldn't have any other competitors that he could carry around as a possible eclectic approach to religion with co-regents with Jesus Christ. He knew Jesus Christ could not be just one among many gods who happened to have a very attractive story. He knew this is the one who revealed himself to me directly. I can't follow anyone else. I can't have any other person or God or goddess to compete with the supreme authority and ownership of my soul. It belongs to the Creator, the one who created all things, the one who died on the cross for me, the one whose blood alone has justified me, whose resurrection from the dead has justified me. This is the Gospel. And so God here, when He says, you shall have no other gods, He sets not only the standard, but the foundation of the relationship of any human being, particularly the Jews here, with himself. Now we extend that application to people who perhaps would consider themselves not backward as those who have religious tendencies in their estimation, but they're very scientific and they're very learned and they don't believe in any folklore quote-unquote, they feel they're advanced. They're told by the living God also, as all of us are. You should have no other gods before me. I'm the one with the rescue plan. I'm the one who has paid for your release with my blood, the ransom. I'm the one whose power raised my body from the grave. As the Bible says, the Father raised Jesus from the dead. The Spirit of resurrection. The Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The triune God, the living God. We're told not to have any competitors also with the supreme authority, the rulership and ownership of the living God of our souls. And everything belongs to Him. Speaking with a, a believer in Christ recently, a lady, and she said that she was engaged in marriage seminars with her husband, teaching them and leading them. And she made that correct observation that there are people who are married but they have separate accounts, even bank accounts. And the implication was not to have accounts that are diversified for a common net gain for the family. But the implication was a division 
in the heart through lack of trust. It becomes my money and your money. And the marriage relationship is more of a true business contract on the part of both spouses instead of a covenant by faith or trust, good faith. They come to the Lord as a covenant of trust. You're the one to whom I belong. Everything I have is yours. There's a marriage that is founded on faith, continues by faith until the consummation. The Lord returns to take his bride to live with him forever. You should have no other gods before me. Materialism, vain philosophies. How many so-called Christians engage in witchcraft? They are amazed and curious about astrology and horoscopes. And they're into many things. There's a young man that ventured into our church a few years ago. And he grew up in a particular church and denomination which had the basic salvation message. And yet he thought it was okay to go into astrology and explore different things. He thought that he can incorporate it all. What did he learn in that particular church? Nothing that could save the soul got into him. That compromise of our souls to dip into and dab into different things that Satan would try to bait us with and then hook us with and destroy us with. We have to guard our faith jealously and zealously. I'm married to one person, as the Apostle Paul says. We want to espouse you as chaste virgins to Christ. To have this fidelity, sincere covenant. There's no room for three in the marriage relationship. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I come to Jesus who owns me. He made everything and he made me and he has provided for me and everything I have is under his ownership. But to venture off into other things invite things that displease my Savior is invite trouble and to disobey this first commandment of recognizing and yielding to his rulership in our lives. May this message regarding this first commandment be crystal clear in our hearts as to why the Lord said that first to these people who he would make a nation. The people through whom he would bless the world 
as he promised Abraham in Genesis 12. So thus, we can send a mixed signal to the world, even while trying to proselytize and evangelize. Because God knows the truth, and therefore the message will not come out pure with one who is duplicitous, is less than sincere before God in private. And there's no crucifixion of that self and that curiosity. We have to be careful what we expose ourselves to and what we like to think about or read about. It can be very dangerous to our souls. But it's not difficult to obey the first commandment or any commandment of God because it's based on trust and faith. And some would say good faith as in a contract. Because in the relationship with this spiritual marriage with Christ, it's based on a love faith or a faith love. And a spouse who loves the other spouse finds it repulsive to ever even consider someone else as a possible interest in the relationship. It's not difficult to keep the terms of the covenant relationship in marriage for one who's sincere. But insincere believers begin to fall off the track. And the divided loyalty literally becomes as two ships launching out from the harbor side by side and because the directionality is slightly off there's a distorted view that has been invited and the creature bites the fruit that is forbidden and the disloyalty and the divided loyalty becomes more and more obvious as time goes on the two ships end up in two different destinations such as the human soul that is not sincere one time could have been sincere before the Lord but they've neglected this first commandment and began to invite and serve other gods secondly the Lord says you shall not make for yourself a carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth does this mean that we can't have art sculptures paintings the context is clear, you shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. Even in the temple there are pictures of cherubims and different things God instructed to decorate and signify spiritual meanings. 
Dada gives the gift of art to us, not to pervert and go after immorality even within the art, as so many artists have done in every culture. That perverted mindset, perverted heart that comes to take over a person that's been blessed with skills and creativity that only the Creator can give. Becomes perverse and in the name of abstract art, so much of confusion is on display, which originated in that confused, perverted soul. And uh, sometimes thousands of people, maybe millions of people who are open to confusion and immorality come and they stare at the paintings and they write pieces about them. They read commentaries about them and what that art could mean and how wonderful it is. Perverted imagination in the name of art on display. And the most tragic thing is that there are people who claim to know the living God and have a covenant relationship with Him who, because of popularity, because of wanting to be politically correct, or accepted and admired, they want to share in the common idolatry and have some of those paintings in their homes. It doesn't have to be a painting of Buddha, painting of some Hindu deity, or painting of some ancestor, no. It can be simply a picture, a photo, a painting, of something that's immoral. In any degree, the presence of Satan is in that home through that art. Why? Because his perverted nature is on display through some perverted soul that has opened up the door to twist and pervert the art talent or the artistic talent to produce something defiled. A total misuse of what God has given. In this context here, the Lord says, even something that doesn't seem to be perverted, if you have that thing, whatever image it is, you bow down to them, God says, my displeasure will be seen in your life and in your generations. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. People were put to death. They dare bring any other God as their God into the camp of Israel. Isn't that right? Someone said, but what about a pluralistic society? What about a multiplicity of gods and the philosophies? What about the wonderful variety that we have, the tapestry of human imagination and ethnic cultures and the traditions that are rich, how many people, believers, absolutely captivated by the Indian culture or the African culture or some European culture, some dance or festival even in the United States. 
absolutely not only not having anything to do with God, but overtly in the name of some New Year celebration or whatever it is in the Chinese culture. All these cultures, they're brought under the guise of embracing diversity. And so we can bring in also homosexuality and two dads and two moms, woman and woman in a marital relationship and man to man and churches weighing in on it, saying, well, we will be the first to embrace this diversity. It's a beautiful display of human Diversity and unity and unity and diversity. How perverted and how sick to invite the serpent who deceived Eve into a culture, first of all, and then worse yet, for the believer to willfully be blind to that. Because if God is in the person, he will reveal it's not right. Diversity in races is something that God made. The diversity in people's physical makeup and their appearance, so many different attributes. It's a beautiful variety of the divine artist. But to bring along with that the disgusting aberrations, distortions of wickedness and corruption and sin and perversion to destroy the human soul, bring them back into bondage again. And here he says, don't make any carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on earth or in the water under the earth. Don't bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Don't worship them. To be a Christian And to look at a notable figure such as John Wesley was used so gloriously in his lifetime, covering thousands of miles on horseback, preaching to all kinds of people in England and in the United States, winning people to this holy life in Christ by giving them the gospel, being threatened with death and not caring, giving himself over to the path of the cross because he loved the Lord and he yielded to his divine call. Even such a monumental figure in Christianity, if I were to have a picture of him and start out saying, well, I like to remember such a wonderfully used life in the sight of heaven. By and by, I begin to admire the man and admire the picture and 
And the thought comes, you know, when I come into the room where I put that picture, I think I should probably take off my shoes because, um, after all, he served God and he represented God and so many souls were saved through him. Um, I should probably give a little more reverence and not be so casual in approaching the presence of this picture of a great man of God. and Maybe by and by I decide, let me bring a little candle with me. After all, if he's so venerated, and should I not illuminate the place to make it distinct from the other pictures and rooms? And maybe I should bow one knee just to acknowledge that he's such a great man. What a brother in Christ and a leader, why would I like to be like him? And before long, why not bow down all the way? The Spirit of God will alert every human being that you don't bow down to anyone other than the living God. There are cultures in which people do these things out of reverence for elders, but we're speaking about worship and uh, a competition that's come in with the living God. To know what it is and to abhor it, utterly hate that. Because why? It's robbing the glory that belongs to God only. The Lord says, I'm a jealous God. This jealousy, we know, is a good jealousy because God is holy. It's a holy jealousy. We've likened it as we've heard messages on this before, to the good jealousy that a good spouse has for that good relationship. It's not a suspicious activity in a mind that is perverted, but a healthy jealousy that this is my spouse and nobody else can share this spouse. I'm in a covenant relationship with my spouse. God says, I'm in a covenant relationship with you. There's no competition. Why? Well, in this case, it's the devil that's seeking to come and take the person away from God. And there are consequences. It's not simply God says, well, you're making me burn with jealousy and I'm very hurt and grieved and it's not going to be so good. We won't be on talking terms because you violated this. God says, uh, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting or bringing with me the reward or the recompense or the punishment for the iniquity of the parents who do what? Bow down show reverence and worship graven images he said I'll pass on that curse to your children to the third and fourth generation because when you do that in violation of my commandment my express commandment you're saying you hate me isn't that right wouldn't a spouse if spouse came home and found the other spouse with somebody new how would you burn with indignation it would be unthinkable you'd think what 
And some people it's happened when they're advanced in age. After 30, 40 years of being with someone. That spirit of adultery comes in. And the other spouse is, well, they feel their life is over and never ever would have imagined. And wouldn't that immediately be understood as the treacherous spouse hating the innocent spouse? Could that person say at that point, well, you know I love you. After all, look, I made you breakfast and I uh, cleaned your room and look, I got you some gifts and favorite things from the department store, just the way you like it. But I'll have this other person with me too. You know I love you. Wouldn't the innocent spouse want to burn up every single thing that that person gave? Because it's a lie. There's no love there. There's no loyalty there. There's no faithfulness. How much more the living God? And the very thing he says is, if I catch you in your imagination drifting toward images and trying to bow down to them and worship them, I'll put a curse on you. And it'll extend to the third and fourth generation. These are words, if you're looking at your Bible, that I've not made up. From God himself who's holy and perfect. The loving God who says, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. He's a God who says, if you deny me, I will deny you. Whoever denies me before men doesn't confess me before people. Doesn't show the loyalty. Isn't that understood? A person can be orthodox in their doctrine, so to speak, on paper and tell everybody in the world, there's one God, Jesus Christ. He's number one. And yet, flirt with immorality and flirt with materialism and flirt with the horoscopes and flirt with self-worship, um, worship the body, live to exercise, 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 be fit. And that's the priority. Whatever it is, whatever the God, whatever God is capturing their attention, God says, um, those people are saying plainly they hate me. But the ones who are loyal, God says, I will show my mercy to them. I'll be faithful to them who are faithful to me. The third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. 
the common understanding is that people hear the name of Jesus used irreverently sometimes mixed up with some profanity absolutely that's taking the name of the Lord in vain and the guilt remains on the person punishment will come to that foul mouth and foul heart but also blasphemy through ascribing to God's name which reveals his character something that's not true saying well Jesus said this but he really meant this and pervert that doctrine of holiness of separation from all that is ungodly all that is worldliness and uh, reject or pervert the doctrine of consecration giving myself 100% to the Lord God my time, my talent, my treasure giving my schedule to God for the year, for the month, for the week for the day, for the hour, for the minute for the second To say that God didn't mean that. He knows you're an individual. And uh, we have Christian liberty. And as long as you believe Jesus and you have him in your heart, that's all that matters. That's it. You can go to the ball game on Sunday and have a great time. Who cares about this um, law that says it's uh, the Lord's Day and Sunday laws that were enacted in this country and uh, it's all archaic stuff, you know. We're people of the spirit, and why is uh, no division between sacred and secular? Everything's one for us. We're free, and I'm a Christian in the ballpark on Sunday. Can't wait for church to be over because the Super Bowl is on. God understands. After all, I've ordered pizza and. Soda, juice for the healthy ones, and some beer for those who still are growing up. It'll be in my house, but I'm going to evangelize. And you know what? Before the Super Bowl, we're going to say a prayer to Jesus that the team wins. And afterwards, we're going to thank God and hold hands and sing Kumbaya and say, please clean up after yourself. My spouse doesn't like the smell of beer on Monday morning fine Christians and even pastors will shorten the sermon on Sunday so everybody can get home to have a great time if I call myself a Christian and I claim to obey God then I am bold enough to say that I preach the true doctrine of Christ I'm dishonoring his name by my behavior and choices, by my loyalties and priorities that are clearly evident. But we live in a day and day and age where people say, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. If you turn a blind eye to what I've done, I'll turn a blind eye to what you've done. And we can all be together, uh, united nations in the church, diversified varieties of color and creeds. Wait, wait a minute. 
Colors, yes, but creeds? The doctrine is one. It's a holy, pure, singular doctrine. Of Jesus Christ, that he's supreme in our lives. So taking the name of the Lord in vain is not only using his name in profanity or flippantly using his name in conversation, but is also misrepresenting him because the name Hashem represents God in all that he is, his character. By our choices, by our actions, we can participate in blaspheming God's name. David disobeyed the Lord and committed murder and adultery and lied, engaged in deception. The Lord said, you despised me, despised my word. How was he representing God's name, who he sang and rejoiced in one time? It was a complete departure from the faith when engaged in those acts. And when he called himself a Jew and a leader of the people, a monarchy under a theocracy, he was misrepresenting that name. And he was guilty, and Psalm 51 bears out his acknowledging of that guilt and his thorough repentance. So we need to be careful not to use God's name flippantly, certainly not to blaspheme his name through some profanity or to entertain that. We should be furious when we hear someone blaspheming God's name, taking the name of the Lord in vain, but directed by the Holy Spirit and how to address it. The fury comes because of the loyalty, the fierce loyalty to God, just as someone who really loves his or her spouse would not be as we've seen in the teachers' lounges when we used to teach in the secular schools and even in the private schools, even in the Christian school. where these spouses would just put down their spouse back at home, unsuspecting, saying he's no good and she's no good and I'm more clever than that one. Have a great time with the colleagues. Would the spouse be happy who heard that conversation? Does it not show a despising of that person by the guilty party. But a person who loves would defend the honor of that spouse. How could we expect anything less if we really love the living God? Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. The Sabbath day is the seventh day. Some have 
extended Sunday to be the Christian Sabbath, the day of rest and worship of God. And it's in keeping with the scripture. It's not a law, as the Jews had a law to keep that seventh day. But the principle is there because God did rest from his works on the seventh day. And particularly if the first day of the week, Sunday, is used as a day in which the majority of Christians around the world, following the example established in the New Testament when the offerings were collected on those days, when people met together and it became a tradition, God never said, don't do it. In fact, much good has come out of those who sincerely gather together on the day of the Lord's resurrection. Scripturally, doctrinally, there's not a precise transfer that happens from the seventh day to the first, first day as being a Jewish Sabbath to the Christian Sabbath. There's no written regulation God has given, but it's understood that in principle, we have given that day to rest and reflect on the God who has given us breath and grace all week long to worship him and to gather together to learn of his word. It's written clearly that no one should judge anyone else on the Sabbaths pertaining to what day they choose to worship. However, if the majority of Christians or my family worships on Sunday, wouldn't it be odd for me to opt out of that and say, well, I'm going to do it Tuesday. I'm breaking that love connection with God and with the people of God and that unity. And I will rob myself of what God is doing in the midst of the people of God when they gather together. So these reasons must be understood in the light of Scripture. If anybody would say, say well, there's no such thing as a Christian Sabbath. The Sabbath is of the law and we're free from the law. The principle is understood. And the commandment here is to keep it holy. What is holy? Immediately we think of purity. But it also means a separation for a particular use. Something that is holy, such as uh, the vesture, the garments of the priesthood. They're kept particularly for a certain purpose. To worship God. It will not be used for a common purpose wearing or events. When I dedicate a day of the week to be holy, I'm saying this is set apart for God's glory. On that day, I don't think to work unless it's a situation where it's beyond my control Unless for a season, a portion of the day, there's a 
reason that God would overlook temporarily. The driving force with a human being who understands the scriptures, who is loyal to God, would be to want to get out of that situation as fast as he or she could, to dedicate that day to God and end up doing that. You see that sacredness and the separation, the holiness of the day is not merely ritualistic or ceremonial. It has to do with the heart. That I'm not going to watch anything secular, even the news, on God's day. I've written expressly, but it's understood by implication that I'm dedicating the day to God. It's not the day to go fishing, to get my mind off of God and get into relaxation just like a heathen would. But my relaxation is primarily in the presence of God, reflecting on His goodness and communing with Him and encouraging the family to do the same. Does it mean it's wrong to take a walk on a Sunday? Absolutely not. But while we're walking, we understand the day is the Lord's. Hallelujah. And as I walk, it's not a compulsion because I want to be fit. but to relax. Many people have had wonderful communion with God by walking physically and simultaneously walking with God spiritually, talking to Him during the whole walk. And if they should walk with another human being, the conversation revolves around the goodness and glory of God. Everything that is dedicated to God must be kept that way, not reclaimed, and begin to make a bargain, take pieces and chunks out of that thing that I dedicated to God and use it for what? My own selfish reasons. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Keep it separate from the other days. What you do on the other days, because you want to, don't do it. Don't try to do it on that day. We read about the manna. The Lord said, take it six days, even six days. And the sixth day, take a measure for the seventh day. I'll give you that much. Let that seventh day be holy in the Christian's life. Because Sunday is the day that most people go to church, worship the Lord, keep that day for the Lord. Remember Martha? The Lord of the Sabbath was in her house. The Lord of the Sabbath was in her house and she missed that rest because she failed to sanctify that day when Jesus came into the house. But her sister understood the truth. I cease from my works that I may enter his rest. May the Lord give us understanding. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son. Notice the responsibility to the head of the house. Responsibility to the parents. There are people, Christians, who say, well, I'm following God the best I could, but my kids, they don't follow God. My spouse, you know, I can't control them. I can't be a Christian for them, but have you fulfilled your responsibility in showing the fervent loyalty to God yourself 
an uncompromising attitude toward everything God says to hold dear and sacred. The force of that obedience by example and demonstration can win the family over. But if I'm wishy-washy in my own allegiance and I'm very malleable and flexible to the point where anything goes, I try my best, quote-unquote, but, you know, things do slip in and I'm only human. Oh, I forgot. This is the Sabbath day and I've cursed. Can you imagine the height of presumption in such a statement? This is what passes off for Christianity in many places. There's no reverence of the Lord God who brought them out of bondage from a horrible servitude to the devil. And then by instruction, by example first, by gentle instruction, but firm conviction. It's the Lord's day. We don't do that today. But why? Don't ask why. No, that's not the answer. You see in the scriptures, God repeatedly says to the parents, explain it to your children. And this is the difference between a cold, quote-unquote, orthodox religion in Christianity where the children want nothing to do with the parents' religion, even if it's orthodox, meaning they have the right doctrine that Jesus is the only way. Because what they see is a legalistic type of mentality with um, no love and enforcement with punishment. That's all the children knows. Children know. But as we demonstrate our fierce loyalty and love to the Lord and the obedience of His commandments, abiding in His word is every word. I'm in a position then, we're in a position to be able to help those little inquiring minds or even a spouse that doesn't know the Lord as well, maybe a lukewarm, backslidden Christian of a spouse to show, I love the Lord and it's only right. And if you consider yourself a Christian, you should do what I do. Follow me as I follow Christ. And this is the reason why. Here are the scriptures and here's the explanation. Now, would you pray about it? If you still need further clarification, that your heart will become loyal to the Lord and we can go to church together. We can honor the Lord on the Sabbath day together. Or I should say the Christian, quote-unquote, Sabbath. That we would make this house Demon-free? Any artifact, any picture, any object, no matter where it came from and who it came from and how much it costs. If the Lord is not pleased with it, it's not going to remain in this house. To have that kind of reverence for God, to treat the home sacred and the day sacred and the life sacred, this is the intent of the scriptures and even the law. That the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God, verse 10 of Exodus 20. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Notice how comprehensive it is and how grave of a responsibility it is 
not unlike what the Lord told the Israelites examine if there's any leaven in the house to make sure you get it out a diligence for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth isn't God the ultimate wonderful parent he explains everything for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you and this fifth commandment is of course built in with a promise honor your father and your mother there are some people who have such a heathenistic mindset that once the parent is old becomes non-functional unproductive and can't even respond to my greeting um, I can put that parent under the care of another human being maybe put the person in a nursing home and you know they live their lives these parents now they're old and maybe even senile and so what we have to do is let them live out the rest of the days make sure they get fed and they're cleaned up basically I don't have a parent anymore because I can't get what I want from that parent people do that with spouses who've gotten into accidents or have diseases and they're no longer productive quote-unquote no longer can reciprocate the love they'd like to share spouses and children parents how cold and callous and brutal the human heart can become how wonderfully pleasant and vivacious and congenial all dressed up and all made up with the best person so nice so pleasant so humble but when the inner workings of the heart and imagination and motivation are examined a cold brutal merciless killer somebody says never murdered a person in his or her life what do you mean the way they treat their own family because that utility aspect of it is just not there they're not contributing to anything therefore I won't love them because they're not able to contribute we're not talking about laziness here we're talking about people whose functionality has ceased because of their old age or because of sickness because of an accident the real true colors come out of a human heart and how many family members rush oh sister brother uncle yeah yeah mom's no longer functional and the doctor said we probably should pull the plug you know it's going to just rack up money I don't want to pay for all of that even though maybe we can maybe we can't um, and after all the doctor said so who Dr. God all the doctors are gods aren't they their words finally you know why because they're gods who say what I like to hear 
in the will of God, well, if it's a sin, he'll forgive me later. People commit murder by signing off on someone's life and saying to someone else, pull the plug. Not unlike David. I'm not going to do it myself, kill Uriah the Hittite in cold blood, broad daylight. But I'll set it up so that somebody else can conveniently do it and I can just remove him out of my life. You see, and I, I can get the benefits, I can get the inheritance, oh, that headache will be off of me, off of my family. But wasn't that person part of your family? Isn't that person still part of your family? May we be true to God and have that basic fear of God and basic love. Basic love, nothing extraordinary. There are people in cultures where they don't know Christ and they love their people more than many Christians. And there are many Christians who love their pets more than human beings. God have mercy. Jesus came and died for people. Human beings with souls. And the moment of truth is when somebody's utility, utility, I should say, seems to have ceased. And this is what the Nazis were famous for, or infamous. In their estimation, this one who's handicapped, or that one who's too old, and this one who's not fit, or this one doesn't fit the profile, it's best to eliminate them because they're a burden, you see. And uh, make sure you don't have more than one kid because it's a tremendous burden on society. We should care for each other in the government. And people are alive. Why bring somebody who doesn't need to be alive into the world and just eat up the resources? What's the value of a human life? Are children a gift from the Lord? Is the fruit of the womb his reward? The persuasions that come from Satan, we must guard against. Be true to God and true to people, especially to the parents here. Honor your father and your mother. Even the worst parent, a true believer, wouldn't hesitate to help that person stay alive. Why? Isn't there hope that perhaps... A person can get saved and not go into a Christless eternity? Am I not the one who's sealing that faith, so to speak, if I pull the plug, quote-unquote? Am I playing God? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Someone says, well, there are cases that are unique, there are other factors, Pastor, you don't understand. It's not as simple as you make it sound. Granted, there are situations in which we need perhaps more enlightenment at the moment and know how to navigate it. But nonetheless, God has placed a conscience within each of us. God will direct us even in the most difficult situations with uh, multiple factors coming into play. We can end up doing what's right in the sight of God and that's our objective always if we're to be true to God. 
this fifth commandment with explanation by way of extension to the value and the respect not only to the parents but to human life and as we began to those parents especially who are ill-treated and mistreated and abused and discarded quite literally by children who those parents lived for and gave themselves for ruthless especially in the end when it matters when the person is incapacitated where's the love where's the loyalty this is my mother this is my father I won't let anyone do anything to them let them live as long as God gives them breath I'm for that I want them to enjoy life and also if they don't know the Lord perhaps how many people we've seen as we've done nursing home ministry and many people have seen a person can be a hundred years old and written off by society and the family they come to salvation like a little child for the first time and they've gone to church all their life some of them have never came into a relationship with Jesus Christ and it happened in the nursing home when everybody had given up on them because someone else valued their lives who don't even belong to that family physically because of the love of God you shall live long upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you if you honor your father and your mother father mother who says do the wrong thing go ahead watch movies and smoke cigarettes and come let's go dancing together it's ladies night out let me take my daughter and granddaughter let's go to that party where only women are there God have mercy it's a good time uh, we have a Christian version of it for everything and you're supposed to honor me I'm your father I'm your mother and I said let's go uh, let's go to the ball game on Sunday and spend the majority of the day just relaxing you know and enjoying each other's company and after all we went to church now we need to stand up and say mom dad as much as I love you if the child is the one who's alerted spiritually to the ways of God I want to dedicate the day to God oh children stand up for a lot of things parents stand up for a lot of things they will go to the PTA meeting they'll go in front of City Hall they'll write to the senators they will be all over the place protesting and advocating it's amazing the capability of a human being the many things that one can do when it comes to God I, um, I don't know I think that's a little hard on my child and I think it's legalistic to want to give the day to God I, who said that? which pastor and which person all of a sudden they become very liberal in their estimation in a positive way but before God is very negative verse 13 you shall not murder many things can be said about that statement once again the Holy Spirit will guide a person if they're in the armed forces or they're in law enforcement 
what kind of force is coming against them and what kind of force is coming against innocent people whether to intervene and how to intervene and whether the consequences, the results are justifiable before God the Lord says in the New Testament in the book of Peter God institutes government and people in position to execute judgment and punish evildoers God will direct the person who is sincere just as we said about mercy killing so to speak there's a God before whom every human being will have to stand whether with bloodstains on their hands or innocence we have to be very careful not to be persuaded by society or even Christian society filled with people who are playing games with God to their own destruction perverting the scripture but we need to go to God and say Father here's a situation and if we're confused God will clarify at the end of the day we want to be able to say Lord I did your will exactly what's on your heart Lord I followed you and did what you said even if the whole world is against me 10,000 at my right hand fall and an army against me disaster and death threats I do the will of God because God said in John chapter 2 the epistle of John 1 John 2 the world and its pleasures are passing away but whoever does the will of God lives forever you should not commit adultery we spoke of that in various aspects physical and spiritual adultery God says be loyal to your spouse and of course be loyal to the living God our heavenly bridegroom there's no room for competition no room for three or four or five or a hundred God owns all of my time period I will look to God's direction ask him how should I use my time ask him how should I use my money Lord ask him how should I use the abilities you give me my talents ask him Lord I can do this I can knit I can weave I can write I can speak I can build I can do this that or the other thing who's given the ability to Almighty God for what purpose to glorify him to build his kingdom and to help people how many people have abilities and they are left dormant or used sparingly and selfishly not for us to spend on ourselves but to honor the Lord and be a blessing to others otherwise God will take that away on that day when someone says Lord I knew you're an austere hard servant that is hard master <clears throat> and I, <clears throat> I buried it underneath here Lord here it is I'm giving it back to you where's the investment and where's the return we need to give an account for that to be loyal to God to do what he says to be faithful to him to do his will verse 15 you should not steal 
even a paperclip. Many, many Christians will laugh. They'll have a good belly laugh and roll on the ground maybe because somebody said, I needed a paperclip. And I took it from the job. Oh, whatever. Laugh about it. But if the paper clip was bought at the expense of the company and it belongs to the boss of the company, I should pay for it. I should replace it if it was taken with permission and borrowed. If it was given to me with permission, then rightfully use it. But it's those little compromises with the Word of God and belittling the commandment of God because of the proportionality that I think this uh, disobedience to that commandment holds in the general scheme of things. It's not like I took a chair home. I didn't take the boss's water bottle that sat on his desk. Just a clip, a paper clip. Thousands of them everywhere. Look, there's one in the trash. There's a sensitivity that God gives. Um, it's not prudishness, overly righteous, but true righteousness that I need to respect God's word. And there will be a alarm bell going off in the conscience but if I allow that to be laughed at and scorned and I join in with the scorn party how could you think that this is going to cause some big problem that you stole it's just lying around well there are people who began that way and they graduated to stealing computers from the job And there are people who interfere with the will of a loved one and they make sure they get their share, quote-unquote. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. To be truthful. to be loyal to God and to people. The pressure comes when someone's job may be on the line because the boss is less than honest. The boss says, well, you're going to write this on this official report that we have to submit to the state or to the government. And you know it's not true, it's not accurate. And the last person that rubbed the boss the wrong way on this particular detail, no longer on the payroll, and so here's the moment of truth, quite literally. You tell that person, no matter how big and bad he or she looks, how much power and how much they can do to you, I'm not writing this. To defy 
the devil to his face whenever he shows up because we love the Lord we fear the Lord God will provide there's always a reward to obeying the Lord to be truthful in this case it says against your neighbor but we can extend that to lying about anything speaking of a loyalty that person that has the trust in you usually not neighbors who are at feud at a feud or in a feud with each other but to have that basic decency and the implication is there's some gain involved if you snitch or lie on your neighbor the human heart the monstrosity of it is exposed when the law comes in and shines that light the law of God and we have the option there to walk in the light or to opt for darkness and get that thing that stolen bread that seems to be so sweet ends up like gravel in the mouth as is written in the Proverbs verse 17 you should not covet your neighbor's house you should not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant nor his female servant nor his ox nor his donkey nor anything that is your neighbor's neighbor's automobile neighbor's clothing the neighbor's backyard the neighbor's whatever don't desire to have that because covetousness is idolatry we heard that the other day in the book of Ephesians because the things become attractive attractive to me and they take up my imagination and I just got to have it that impulsivity is saying that the same way that I should hasten to love God and fear him and obey him and read his word and worship him I can't wait is the same kind of drive I have for something that is material to look good or to have that image and look like the neighbors actually want to have what they have want to take that from them many battles between countries happen because somebody wants somebody else's land I'll go by force and take it from them I'll, I'll get into a feud with them I'll dispute and I'll make sure it turns into a big bloody fight and I will force them to give it up and so it happens in families in the hearts of individuals they have to say take all the money take whatever not in an irresponsible way but to say that you can't get me to compromise my loyalty to the commandments of God to love him supremely with everything that I am to know that to love anything else is to be unfaithful to him and to commit spiritual adultery to be covetous is idolatry I will not get into that mode of thinking or attitude where things become my main thing 
and I'll stand by the principles of God, knowing, remember Abraham, he said, Lot, whichever side you take, you get first pick. What a faith he had. And what a humility and what a nobility in his heart, Abraham. God will take care of me. doesn't matter which way I go. doesn't matter who got to pick first. Imagine during the time of the execution of someone's will, if the family members have that kind of nobility and trust and humility. My God will take care of it. Oh, they're trying to cheat me with this. There's a time to speak up, but you see the attitude with which we speak up and the way in which we do that and with what kind of intent, what's in the heart, it matters before God. May the Holy Spirit help us to be sharp and alert because the words are not said this morning in vain, but that we become alert that everything matters to God because of the issues from the heart we want to be clear before God because on Judgment Day, every secret thing will be brought out. Everything. Better to judge ourselves now. We won't be judged later. And as we conclude this chapter, not too many verses, I'd like someone to read, if you'd like to, from verse 18 to 21. Exodus 20, 18 to 21. Exodus 20, NLT version, verse 18 to 21. When the people heard the thunder and the loud, loud blast of the ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance, trembling with fear. And they said to Moses, You speak to us. And we will listen. But don't let God speak directly to us or we will die. Don't be afraid, Moses answered them. For God has come in this way to test you. And so that your fear of him will keep you from sinning. As the people stood in the distance, Moses approached the dark cloud where God was. Praise God. Praise God. Before we look into these verses, may I just say that um, placing an elderly person in a nursing home, of course, is not sin per se. When a person can't take care of that person, they have so many needs, medically speaking. But to jump to do that at the first notion may be entirely wrong before God. So our heart motivations matter. And whether love is the predominant reality in our hearts, in every action, especially when one can't defend him or him or herself, himself or herself, or as I said, is deemed productive, quote-unquote, or functional, or can reciprocate to the good that I do, when they just seem to be taking up space, as the world will say would say we need to make sure we don't go into that area at all God watches everything 
and in our hearts should have that basic decency. Didn't the Lord say, the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you? Who would like to be cast off as uh, useless because they're too old? Because they can't work. You see, you're not contributing to the funds over here in the family. You're useless. Or because of old age or sickness. We're not speaking of laziness. And yet, you know what happens? The world has a saying, what goes around comes around. And the scriptures say, whatever a person sows, that shall he also reap. God will make sure it will come back full circle. But the motivation, as I said, is not simply fear of the consequences. I don't want that to happen to me, but it's a caution. Not even just that God is watching me. But the tender conscience to the love of God that he put in me. And the utter shame of seeing people who don't even know God take better care of their parents. Their parents are, quote unquote, unresponsive. How much more belief a child of God should? And for the other reasons, who knows if that person in their state of incapacitation, still is able to hear the gospel somehow through some traveling evangelist, maybe a family such as ourselves and others who've gone into the nursing home, such as Stanley and Jensen, their children, when we were given that uh, leading of the Lord to bring them in for that. Who knows? The faith, basic faith, that the doctor is not God and human life is not cheap when it becomes, quote-unquote, useless to the others. Very sacred before God. May the Lord help us with all these ethical considerations which have to do with the truth of God, which is eternal, by which truth we will all be judged regardless of our profession or our position, even in the church, so to speak. Praise God. This fear, we spoke of this last time, they saw, they witnessed the thunderings and lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, the ram's horn and the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And we used our imagination. I trust last time when we read Exodus 19, of how we would respond if we opened our eyes and we saw in the distance this mountain quaking violently like a volcano and an earthquake. These tremors and the ground is shaking, there's smoke there, there's fire, tremendous blast of this ram's horn or the trumpet and it's getting louder and louder and thick darkness and smoke. What a sight. And it was mentioned that God said, I'm coming to put my fear upon you. It's a healthy fear. So you do not ever think it's okay to play God in your life. I'm God. And if you do, it means death for you. So it's my love that's coming to put the fear upon you. Your own good. And Moses said to the people, verse 20 of Exodus 20, Do not fear. 
For God has come to test you and that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Don't be rebellious. That's why God's come to you to show you how awesome he is. In measure, just a little bit, it was a glimpse. In Isaiah 6, it says that post, the doorpost of heaven, the temple shook in heaven. Imagine what kind of shaking that is. And then when God, as you read in Hebrews 12, once more he said, I'll shake not only the earth, but the entire cosmos. Imagine that. My God is an awesome God. There's no one like him. He's the creator. He's the one who will consummate history. The one who will effect the eternal inheritance that he's promised to every one of his children. Who can dwell with everlasting burnings? Our God is a consuming fire. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. In other words, you need the fear of God, but don't be afraid so much that you want to run away because there's a purpose behind this. Don't miss the benefit. Stay. So that his fear may be before you. So what? So that you may not sin. The wages of sin is death. God doesn't want you to die. So the people stood up far off. Spiritual death, that is. And in some cases, physical death prematurely. Verse 21, So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Finally, a few more verses to the close of this chapter as we wrap up this morning. Verses 22 to 26. Someone else can read that. Verse 22, NLT version. And the Lord said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. You saw it for yourself that I spoke to you from heaven. Remember, you must not make any idols of silver or gold to rival me, to rival me. Build for me an altar made of earth and offer your sacrifices to me, your burnt offering and peace offering, your sheep and goats, and your cattle. Build my altar wherever I cause my name to be remembered, and I will come to you and bless you. If you use stones to build my altar, use only natural uncut stones. Do not shape the stones with a tool, for that would make the altar unfit for holy use. And do not approach my altar by going up steps. If you do, someone might look up under your clothing and see your nakedness. Very very precisely expressed here what God prohibits and why. And the import of it all, of all of this, the giving of the law, the beginning which is the Ten Commandments, the fear of God that they were supposed to receive through the awesome sight, the physical things they saw with their eyes 
and the mountain. And the prescription here of how they should approach God, what kind of altar to make and sacrifices, God lays everything out so clearly. The devil is very busy to distract us so we don't read the very words of eternal life, which is in the Bible. And we remain ignorant. Many of us can attest to that. For a good portion of us Christian lives, we were largely ignorant of the scriptures. What a shame. And who is to be blamed? Ourselves. Praise God, we're in a new day. Because of the loss and the lack through our neglect, disinterest with the things of God, if the truth be told plainly, we are in a vengeance mode against what? The wasted years and ignorance. And we trust God that the years that the locust has eaten, we've invited the locust through disobedience. God will restore us much more. He's able. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He can redeem the past. The parable the Lord told is applicable here. If I've never read these words in Exodus 20 for myself, but I've heard it taught in some catechism class or thought on a plaque on some wall, but I didn't take the time to read what the God of heaven, the God who wrote the book, gave it to me as a gift. I never read it. I am driven with everything that's within me, Lord. Like in the parable, the person who came at the 11th hour, so to speak, at the end of the day, gave it everything he or she had to the work when the Lord hired them would be given the rightful pay because of the diligence shown. In the case of the parable, the people were hired early, the others. This person came late. But we can extend that because of God's exceeding great mercy that even if we are the ones who did not come to the job when we should have early, God is able to forgive us. But now, in the last days and weeks and years that we have on the earth, we should be so motivated and so diligent to say, Lord, I'm going to eat up all the word that you give me so that I can be productive in this 11th hour for the glory of God enter into my reward and my rest. Hallelujah. The purpose of God doing all these things and giving the law and putting the fear on the people is this beautiful phrase in verse 24. I will come to you. I will bless you. Hallelujah. Every place that I record my name, every place that you come to me in the prescribed manner, which is to acknowledge my holiness, who I am, and in the case of the Israelites, the altar and how to make it, not to profane it with their tool. Again, he's speaking of that holiness and how to approach him in his way. But praise God, he's made a way. 
Aren't we glad for that forever? He's not a God who is so holy that there's no way that we can get to him. In his holiness, in his love, he's come and made a bridge that is holy that we can come to him. But the purpose of the Lord in Genesis to Revelation, the revelation of himself, his nature, his gospel, his plan, is to come to us and bless us. He wants to have communion with us. The covenant is not just some contract that is without any kind of emotion, without any kind of relationship other than a business type of deal. It's an eternal kinship with the Redeemer, the kinsman Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Through His blood, we get to know God as our very own Father. And like the prodigal son, we come running back and what do we see God doing in all His holiness and majesty? Is He standing there with some thunderbolts we come running back to Him in true repentance? We see Him running toward us. He truly is the God who comes to us. And embraces us and He kisses us it's just the beginning. Begins to lavish his grace upon us. Truly it's extravagant grace. Nothing like it. But all necessitates us understanding how awesome he is. To have his fear upon us with the singular objective of, as far as our responsibility is concerned, can someone fill that in, that blank? What is the responsibility when the fear of God has come upon us? That we do not sin. Yes. I come to Him. If I say I know God, I know the God of the Bible, the real God. If I say I fear the Lord, oh, I love God, God is the reason I'm alive. I have my sanity. I have my clothing, my job, or whatever. But it's still lip service. Until I separate from everything that is sinful in the sight of God. And that's the purpose of God's fear coming upon us. To make us real, sincere, loving children of God. A holy Pride for the Holy Pride crew. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Your word cleanses us. Hallelujah. You said, Lord, the word that I've spoken to you has cleansed you. Jesus, I thank you. Like the fresh rain waters from heaven sweep across all the dirt and mire. We thank you for the washing of the water of the word that we can be in a position to be blessed with a harvest of good fruit that will last unto eternity. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to be in your presence this morning, your word. Bless us this day, Lord, as you promised to bless your people always and continually. And help us to walk deserving 
of the blessing by obeying your voice, just doing our part. You belong all the glory, honor, and praise alone forever and ever. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.